Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Elon, thanks for taking some time to join me. Great to be here, Owen. Nice yeah. to see you again. It is great to be here in your office, uh, overlooking the park here. It's beautiful, so thank you. Uh, a few years ago, quite a few years ago now when we first met, or maybe not the first time we met, but one of those early days times, you did say to me that something that you like to do that maybe not a lot of people knew about you and your spare time is collect shoes. And in particular, you were really interested in Nike shoes. Yeah. So I'm curious, is there any... Anything that you can share with us, something maybe you've bought or sold recently, a pair you're really proud of, something like this. Yeah, I do remember having that chat Mm -hmm. and uh, I do still collect them. I don't sell them. I just buy them and Mm -hmm. keep them for myself in a growing cupboard Mm -hmm. uh, that's quickly running out of space. (laughs) But yeah, I do collect them and I love them. And you're right. Nike has been my chosen brand. Uh, yeah, Yeah, my most recent purchase was actually the first time I bought a pair of Kobe uh, oh, related right. sneakers. Uh, I'm more of a Jordan guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, just what I remember growing up with was seeing Michael Jordan and everything, which is really the way I started collecting sneakers. But Kobe, obviously, uh, mm. has become a historical person of significance. And I kind of like to buy the sneakers that provide some window on history. So I did recently buy a pair of Kobe 4s, they're called. And uh, they're a good-looking shoe. But in particular, what I like about them is, number one, obviously, it's all about Kobe. But it's quite poignant. At the back of them, they've got a, a, the word Gigi, which is the daughter that unfortunately also died in that helicopter accident. So I just thought it was really historical, a nice shoe. And, uh, yeah, that's my most recent purchase, yeah. Kobe 4s. Yeah. yeah. How, how many pairs of sh- sneakers would you have? Oh, no, it's probably not going to be that embarrassing an answer because it's not as many as you might think. It's probably about 50 to 60. <laughs> wow. Yeah, okay. which I don't know if that's a lot or little. In the world of sneakerheads, that's considered medium. In the world of normal people, it's considered a lot. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. That's great. I like it. Um, and it's almost like what can you buy someone who seems to have a lot? Um, and uh, I, I doubt people will be buying your sneakers though because maybe your taste is a uh, bit unique for them. But Probably. It's a good present nonetheless Probably. if anyone is listening. So um, people will know of you as the co-founder of Beta Shares. Um, you've appeared on the show once before and across the interwebs, um, the business, but also yourself is pretty well known now in Australia mm-hmm. and you like to keep yourself very busy. Mm. Uh, you've got the laptop here in front of you, which of I've seen before. <laughs> and, um, 
you seem to be like when we were sitting down thinking about recording this episode today, you seem to be the, the person in the ETF industry in Australia who knows what's going on, who can see the future in terms of like where the industry is shaping up. Um, you were very, very early in this industry too. So this conversation is going to talk a lot about that. But I'm curious before we get into that, how you actually go about structuring your day maybe or your week or your routines. Like how do you keep on top of it all? How do you keep on top of yourself, your work-life balance, these mm. types of things? Yeah, well, it's a challenge. And I definitely, by the way, don't think I can see the future. But thanks for that anyway. Yeah, the laptop thing, I mean, I just found it to be an incredible productivity hack just to sort of address that quickly. I, I started taking notes on the kind of cl- some sort of cloud-based note-taking platform. And once I did it, it just was a revelation. It's just yeah. an incredible productivity hack. So that's why I used the laptop to, yeah. to take notes. I never looked back after that. So, um, But in terms of structuring myself and I guess keeping productive, first and foremost, I mean, it's gonna be what a lot of people will say, but just remaining fit and healthy. For me, no matter how hard a week I've had or how hard a day I've had, I'll always wake up in the morning and do a form of exercise. It clears the mind, gets me ready for the day. It's a combination in my case of a bit of running uh, and, and the gym. Mm. And I do find that it's completely vital to my productivity. It energizes me, it basically keeps me sane. So that's the first thing. Some sort of exercise at least five times a week is mm. critical to me. Um, and then work is demanding, obviously, like many of us, it's a demanding sort of role that I have here and it takes up a lot of my time. What I try to do is I try to compartmentalize my work and my non-work activities, meaning to say that if I'm in a non-work environment, I'll be very present in that environment. So for example, I've got a young family, I'll put away the phone, put it to the side, don't look at it and just be very focused on the kids at that period for that period of time. Mm. Uh, and the same then goes for friends, the same then goes for other sort of social activity and then the same goes to work as well. I try to just really compartmentalize being productive that, that way. Um, I do things like use to-do lists as well. I have a to-do list of, you know, of the day and sort of say, what do I really need to achieve today? At mm. the very least, I have to see a red line between, and that is a physical red line. I actually use pen and paper for that. Hmm. A physical red line to, to cross out you know, what has to be done that day. Um, then other things in terms of keeping up to date and you mentioned sort of being able to see the future. Definitely <laughs> can't, but I actually use Twitter a lot. I think right. Twitter is, or X as it's now called, yeah. Yeah. Kind of hard to call it anything but Twitter, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but Twitter to me is a super valuable place to keep updated. It's real time, it's informative, it's short. As long as you follow the right kind of people, the right yeah. accounts, I find it a super valuable way to mm-hmm. keep across the industry and the financial services industry and other things that I'm interested in. Uh, and finally, I think the one thing I try not to do is mindless scrolling. You know, I really just bring myself back to the fact that all you get from mindless scrolling on Instagram is largely a dopamine hit. You really can avoid it your whole life if you want to. Sometimes you can use it as a recreational activity, but to get stuck in a loop of mindlessly scrolling, I think is something I really actively try to avoid. So I don't know, those are some things that come to my mind when you ask that question. Yeah, Um, and just for people's reference, um, the laptop is always present because you're always taking notes on the fly. Yeah. um, Which is, which is, like you said, a great productivity hack because a lot of us wait until the end of meetings or that afternoon to talk about it, Um, but not in your case because you're meeting with so many people and you're doing so many things. Yeah. Um, So since even since we met, but since BetaShares launched Mm. here in Australia, uh, the business has changed. By my numbers, there's over 80 funds or ETFs. Yeah. Uh, There's nearly $30 billion under management and over 900,000 clients. So it's a... Big business now, um, over 100 staff as well. 
I'm curious how your role has had to evolve. Obviously, early days, I imagine, like many startup environments where it's, there's a huge challenging opportunity in front of you. But I'm curious how maybe your leadership, your business management skills have evolved over time. Yeah. So I'm happy to say we've crossed 30 billion now in they assets under management. Um, and another, which we found to be a great milestone uh, in the business. And we've also just ticked over a million clients uh, wow. that we use, that, that we in some shape or form serve. Yep. Uh, so that's cool. Um, yeah, so my role, I'm Chief Commercial Officer here at BetaShares. What that basically means is that my focus is on the growth, strategic growth of the business, yep. the planning of that and the execution of that. Uh, so I have always been focusing on that from the very beginning of this journey in, in many ways, but obviously the nature of it has changed quite dramatically. As you mentioned, it has become a bit of a bigger business. Mm. So the nature of it, the day-to-day nature of my work has changed a lot. I'll take the example, the marketing function uh, reports into me and we have a sort of a really high quality marketing function in this mm, business as do. we've spoken about before. Yeah. In the early days, I was the marketing function, right? <laughs> I was writing the press releases. I was um, coming up with advertising strategies. I was instructing graphic designers on what the ad should look like, writing content myself, writing product collateral. I mean, so that's absolutely down and dirty what you do in a startup environment. Now we've managed to build a really high class, as I mentioned, I'd say world-class marketing team. So the responsibilities for marketing now, which I'm using as an example, are much more strategic in nature, uh, a mentoring team management focus, much more so. So that's one side. But more broadly, as we think about strategic growth in our business, that the nature of that has changed as well. So the core focus is still the same, which is ETFs and the products and bringing out things that would help our Australian investors to financially progress, which is the vision yep. we've set ourselves. Um, we've got 87 funds now. Um, uh, you mentioned 80, it's 87 funds. And so we always find opportunities to, to grow that. And so that remains the same. But I think what's changed quite a bit is our broader strategic growth plans. For example, now we're finding ourselves looking a lot more internationally at, mm. at opportunities. So we, we launched a New Zealand business just mm. last month, um, which is brand new. Yeah, and I just learned about that. Yeah, yeah it's going to require some focus and activity. We're looking at other geographies as well, expansion-wise, such as Asia and other opportunities there. I think we're also much more focused on what I would call inorganic growth or acquisition-oriented growth for the first time. And that requires a different set of focus, a different set of activities. Mm. So I think I think that's one of the things that, that I you know, have been spending a lot more time on that obviously as a startup, I didn't need to. Um, All of it really just comes down to back to your initial question, being ultra jealous of my time and just um, learning to really say no a lot more. Because you again asked me the question of how's the role changed. I would have jumped at every meeting back in the day, no matter what it was for. I think over time I've learned and I'm still learning. I don't think I'm that good Mm. at it to say no a lot more. Ask myself, do I need to be in this meeting or not? Will I be able to add any value by being there? If not, would somebody else be better placed? So that's a big change, really trying to say no a lot more, being a lot more jealous with my time. Um, And yeah, just make sure there's enough time in the day. And this is the other challenge that I grapple with all the time. Enough time in the day to get away from the laptop and get away from the execution of the business and actually do some thinking about Mm. various problems that there might be in the business itself. Those are some of the ways I I sort of think about the way the business has changed. Yeah, because you've got, as the business has grown and evolved, your time horizon, I would assume, to look at strategy has also expanded because you can kind of slowly, I guess, lift yourself off of those day-to-day tasks yeah. and think more like, well, two or three years out. A, a question that some of the big tech CEOs and 
visionaries, quote unquote, get get asked a bit. It's like how how far into the future do you try and look when you when you're thinking about strategy? Um, like you said, maybe it's as short as ninety days, maybe it's two years. Like how do you think about that? As a business, we've always been very fortunate to look quite long term. It's a value of being a private business uh, and just the way we think about the world. So I would say we look in decades. We yeah, think wow. about we, we think about the first decade of the business being a scenario where we built a brand, created a whole lot of core cool products, uh, created a whole lot of customer relationships and built what is now a quite a large asset management enterprise. The next the next decade is what's beta shares of 2033 going to look like? Or in fact, 2030 is what we're setting. And so that's some of the thing that we spend some time thinking about in the mm. business as well and, and talking about with, with, our, with the whole team. Mm. One of the keys to scale, in my opinion, is the ability to attract great people and keep great people and systems and these types of things. How, I guess this is a broad question, but how do you think about like the, the culture you foster here at Beaches? Because people from the outside, people see it as such a, like it's high performing. You guys have achieved so much. Mm. So, is there some type of value or principles that you follow here? Yeah, there are. There are. We actually took the time in our sort of ten year milestone. We're up to year thirteen now, but at our ten year milestone, we took some time to actually write those down. Mm. Uh, and I think some of the words that I would use are uh, humility. I think it's a very Australian thing in a way, but we kind of lean into that humility side of things to just remember that we are ultimately just one player in a very large industry and remain humble while at the same, while at the same time being ultra ambitious. And these are the sort of things that I would think about as we hire. Mm. Ambition at the, on one hand, but not at the expense of humility. Uh, the other one is just innovation. You know, we are legitimately able to be innovative because of our structure of the business and, and, and you know, the way in which we can act with pace. So innovation and innovative thinking, a certain level of rebelliousness of thought mm. are important components to thinking about culture and genuine, genuine morality, genuine compassion for the, for the other humans in the world. Those are some of the things we think about as yeah. core values that we try to foster mm. uh, here. Yeah, great. Um, speaking of the industry, so the latest ASX data that I pulled showed the ETF industry here in Australia is around about 150 billion, um, probably more by the end of this month. Mm. So the speaking of industries, the the entire ETF industry here in Australia is about 150 billion dollars. The last time I checked, um, you have over 30 billion dollars of that. So let's say quite a hefty amount. Like if you're looking from the outside, you think fast growing industries, companies that uh, are growing within that rapidly. One of the things that a lot of our investors that are listening to this will be thinking about is how, how big can the ETF market get here in Australia? Because they've got superannuation, which is frankly massive, even uh, managed funds or mutual funds, if you're in the US watching this, massive. How big can ETFs get? Yeah, yeah. So you're right. It is over 150 billion. Uh, we are now the second largest issuer with that 30 billion dollars. Uh, We're actually first this year, 2023, when it comes to net inflows. Oh well, which is okay. a nice, uh, nice statistic, just being the first in terms of how much money has come in. Uh, but it is dwarfed at 150 billion. It is dwarfed by managed funds, uh, and um, but it's also a much younger industry. Mm. So realistically speaking, the first of the uh, ETFs were launched over 20 years ago. But to be quite honest, the ETF industry as as it stands today and with the sort of effort put behind it and marketing and, and more product development is probably more like 20 years. Uh, sorry, more like 10 years yeah, old. Right. So now that compares to um, the managed fund industry, which I think is about 65, at least 65 years of age in Australia and yeah, wow. much, much longer. So if you think about a 10-year industry in my reckoning versus 65, uh, it shows you that 
is no surprise that it's dwarfed yeah. by the managed fund industry. But the data is really, really telling. So um, for December of last year, so I looked, looked at 2022 in preparation for this catch up. And um, in the last five years, there was $70 billion of new money flowing into the ETF industry in Australia mm. as compared to $9 billion into the managed fund industry. Wow. So realizing that the managed fund industry is so much bigger, yeah. uh, that says a lot about the addressable opportunity. So we, we do feel there is a long, long way to go when it comes to growth here. Mm. Um, we, one of the ways we think about size is what percentage of the ETF industry um, does it make up of the whole managed fund industry? And in Australia, it's about 4%. 4%? 4%, 4 of managed funds is the size of the ETF industry. Wow, it's a lot smaller than I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the US, it's closer to 20. Right. So the way we think about it is that assuming that ETFs reach the current penetration in the US here in Australia, we think it could reach a trillion dollars uh, in assets. So that's an answer to your question. We think it could be a trillion dollar industry and we think that could happen within say 10 years. Wow. Um, you mentioned super. I mean, super is a, is, is a huge industry, but it's not actually a threat to the ETF industry. It's actually an enabler yeah. because our view is that super funds and self-managed super fund trustees will increasingly be using ETF. So in many ways, mm. the fact that we've got a huge and growing a superannuation industry is actually just an enabler to some of that growth that I put forward. Mm. So I think it's a pretty key part of the story for ETF industry growth, actually super. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think from our perspective, uh, we think it can be trillion dollars. And mm. from our perspective, again, if we can maintain the share that we have, of, you know, we usually try to take around 25% of net flows every month or every year, mm -hmm. we can um, end up becoming quite a large asset management business and, and then look at other opportunities over time. Mm. So what, that's a, guess I haven't really sat back and given it this thought nearly that you have. What would be some of the bottlenecks in that? Because a lot of people, um, a lot of people in our industry still look at say like direct investors who use the exchange to buy and sell investments as, kind of like the second player in the game being through intermediaries, whether it's advisors or family officers or whatever. Mm. Um, are there any bottlenecks that you see that could be unlocked over the next 10 years? Well, I must admit that a lot of the bottlenecks have been unlocked. It's the truth of it, Owen. I think there were bottlenecks, but the very fact that we're seeing this kind of explosive growth probably indicates that the bottlenecks have largely been unlocked. They were things like the fact that financial advisors used to get paid a commission, as yeah. you would know, uh, by product manufacturers, which an ETF manufacturer could never do because the margins are lower. So that got removed back in 2012 uh, with the uh, FOFA reforms. Yep. And so the fact that that came in has meant that one of the big bottlenecks is gone. Um, another bottleneck was something like, you know, super fund um, not being able to invest in ETFs, but self-managed super funds can invest in whatever they want. And they're a huge backer of ETFs. So I must admit that there aren't a lot of bottlenecks that I can think of other than education yep. um, and market sentiment. Mm. But I think the bottlenecks are pretty much open and I think we've got a pretty clear passage to, to sort of further into ETF growth into the pretty long foreseeable future. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mm. 
Um, speaking of your ability to take, say, 25% of flows, which is enormous, mm. um, and credit to you for doing that. I know that the team has grown. I think the last figure I saw was about 135 yeah. in the team. And I know you've got like, you got teams in portfolio management, operations, marketing, which you mentioned, software engineering, all of these things. Mm. And you hear numbers like that and there's a, as an outsider, an investor who looks at different types of businesses all the time, I'm curious how you think about not taking that for granted and how you keep innovating, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, we started as a challenger brand and that helps a lot with the mindset because we knew uh, that our competitors were going to be the three largest fund management business in the world on day one. Yeah. And so that gives you a certain <laughs> level of humility, as I mentioned before, and just a desire to keep on going and to, and to retain real innovation. So our focus on innovation has never been stronger. Uh, and I think it's just that challenger brand mentality. And really, probably the thing that really keeps us humble and also innovative is just remembering those early days as that challenger brand where people would put down the phone, who is beta shares? Is it better shares? Is it beta shares? <laughs> you know, we've had all that. And um, I think it's something that we don't take for granted. And I other, the other one as well is when you're up against those very large global players, you know, these are groups with trillions of dollars under management, more so yeah. than billions. Um, we, we have a healthy level of ongoing paranoia. And I think that gives you a level head. It just keeps you hungry and grounded. Um, and then team, you know, team, that, that, that team that, that we have here that I'm a part of, you know, is, is shares those values of humility and innovation, as I mentioned. And so I think that is what keeps us grounded as well. So, yeah, I think, I think those are what I would say, just maintaining that challenger brand mentality mm. at all times and never thinking like taking things for granted. Mm. Have you seen this, if we zoom in a bit, have you seen in recent times, if we, if we say, look out from just this year in 2023, but maybe into 2024, we've seen heaps of uh, new ETFs obviously added, but um, we've also seen more investors coming to market and sure there's a bit of a COVID bump there. But if you look forward 12, 18 months, how do you think about maybe the differences or similarities between what we've seen in the past and mm. where direct mm. investors are going now? Yeah. Um the thing that really strikes me is just the the age of the investor. Right. Um, so when we started, our bet was, and we were proven correct, was that the self-managed super fund or high net worth investor was going to be key to the growth of ETFs. And that's the case. So when we started, it was about 50% of the money, 50% of the AUM and ETFs was owned by self-managed super funds. Oh, right. And so the average age was, you know, somewhere over 55. So... That was the vast majority of the interest. I think over time, what I'm seeing and what we're seeing as a business is just the increasing mainstream of, of retail investors. And obviously, COVID was a big part of that as well. People started investing for the first time, but mm. the younger investor market's been a huge part. The average age, by our reckoning, in that period since we started has dropped by 10 to 12, maybe even 15 years. Wow. And mathematically, that's a big thing, right? To, yeah. to, as you'd know, if you're mathematically minor, which no doubt you are, Owen, <laughs> you know, dropping, dropping an average 10 or so years is a big thing. So the average age has really come down, as has the average amount invested. So it basically just shows that people without as much money are using ETFs more and more. So it's the number of investors going up, the average amount is going down, and the average age is going down. So I think what I'm noticing more and more is that ETFs, and you 
probably be even more aware of this than me, have become the default way in which a new investor starts investing. That yep. wasn't the case at all when we started. You know, They would have maybe dabbled in a few stocks. It feels to me that based upon our conversations and our knowledge of the market, that that is absolutely what happens. People who want to invest, they invest in an ETF for the first time. Um, mm, so that's definitely. been a huge driver of growth. The advisor piece, that is one thing that's remained the same. Advisors have been always adopters of ETFs. I think the percentage of advisors has just gone up so much more to the point where now you'd have to say that the majority of Australian uh, advisors, financial advisors now use ETFs in their practice. Um, mm. So that's that. And then I think just think the understanding of ETFs has just grown. So we don't hear as much about EFTs. <laughs> you know, we hear more about ETFs. I think there's not as much discussion about what is an ETF and more about how do you use them. Yep. There'll always be that what is an ETF question and you'll, people like yourselves are valuable and very valuable in answering those questions from time to time. But I think the understanding has gone up and it just comes back to just being mainstream. Mm. Um, ethical investing is probably one other thing I'd call out. When we started, we put the first ethical ETF in Australia, um, what is now, uh, it must be about five to six years ago that we launched the first ethical ETF, Ethi, and it was a nothing category. And now that category, even in our suite, is over $5 billion. So we're really seeing people use ETFs and aligning those ETFs to their values by using funds like Ethi and other funds that are out there in the market from other competitors. That's been a, a notable change as well. So those are just, yeah, some of the things, some of the things that I've sort of Yeah, that's up. really interesting about the ethical investing um, angle because you guys were at first, but many people would say also have the best funds in the category. Um, and that was, it's really, that's always been really interesting to me because it seems you did it right at the beginning. Um, whereas like obviously now fast forward all these years and now the regulator is looking at different funds for mm. different reasons. Mm. Um, whereas kind of the proofs in the pudding with the flows you're getting there, mm. um, which is great to see, to be honest, it's, it's great to see. Mm. Um, so when you spoke to me previously, you you talked about some of the ideas that are incorporated here at BetaShares and even just in Australia generally are taken basically from the lead of some of the markets overseas. Mm. So I'm curious, do you see, I guess, patterns evolving overseas or anything that you see overseas that you think may be something that Australian investors should be aware of or we will see in the future? Yeah, it's a great question. In the beginning, uh, one of the things we had going for us was be able to look into the future, as I've said quite a few times. You look into the future and, and the US was the future. It's a very valuable thing when you're growing a business to kind of know what the future looks like. Mm. And we didn't, again, take that for granted. I would say that when we started, the US was probably 10 years ahead of the Australian ETF industry. That has um, definitely con con contracted a lot. I think we they are still... And we are mainly talking about the US because that's where most of the innovation is in the ETF industry. Mm. The industry there is much more mature, but the gap is definitely closing. Um, so we can still take inspiration for, for certain things, maybe product ideas, the way that technology is being adopted over there. But I feel that more and more Australia is starting to draw level uh, with, with that sort of pace of change. So um, mostly, you know, we, we, what we noticed there is, is uh, the way in which technology is being used much, much more yeah. um, to, to enable easy investing, right? And we've seen some of that already happen here. That's been a, a, something that I think will continue to happen in this country. I think more lowering cost of investment, simplicity of investing, effortless investing, these are all the things that would become more and more common uh, here and hasn't been the case necessarily in the way that it has in the US. But frankly, you know, a lot of things are, 
are now starting to draw level? I, uh, I think with my position doing interviews like this, um, people maybe look to me too much to give them wisdom on how to grow their business and these types of things. And then I get a chance to sit down with people like yourself and I just get a chance to ask the questions selfishly, mm. which is so nice. Yeah. But people who come to you, a lot of people who think like what you've done is very impressive, which is fair to say, um, and the team you've built, the brand, everything that you've done, the innovation in the industry. I'm curious what types of advice you would give to business owners. And we have a lot of them that listen to the show. What type of advice you would give to them in any sense of the word? Like what's something that you wish you knew when you were starting out? Um, anything like that? Mm. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is this obvious statement, but one that has to still be said time and time again, is that time is the most precious commodity you have. So you really do need to be thoughtful about how you spend the time you spend, mm. uh, both personally and outside of, outside of you know, in a work environment. So that's the first thing is just, you know, if you're a smaller business or just getting started, be pretty, pretty thoughtful about the time you're spending. Um, and I think passion is another one. It's going to be much easier to toil away and work umpteen hours a day mm. if you're passionate about what you do. Uh, that's the second one that absolutely comes to my mind, just remain passionate. And so in particular, in a way, hopefully people who are having their own business, uh, you know, that you mentioned are, are passionate because they probably are. Yeah. But outside of what they want to do work-wise, they should retain that passion too, right? So if they're going to get involved in some course or some, some extracurricular activity, make sure they spend their time on something wisely. Um, I think that's something else that comes to my mind. I think, look, at a, at a more sort of junior level, perhaps, you know, and I know a lot of your, you know, the people that listen to your show is, you know, are, are younger, you're kind of younger investors and younger, younger people. I think surrounding yourself with role models and mentors that you can draw inspiration from and learn habits from is so, so important. Mm. I think that's probably something that isn't quite understood enough. You should go out of your way to find a mentor even if you want to formally make that what happen and really spend time with people that you can, yeah, as I said, you can learn from. Um, like the work from home debate is a perfectly good, kind of, is a perfect scenario of that, mm. right? It's all well and good to say that, you know, you want to be flexible to be able to go and do chores from time to time. And, and that, that makes a lot of sense and it's a new way of working, but there's no substitute for face-to-face, -face, uh, mm. you know, look at us having this conversation. Yeah. There's no substitute for face-to-face -face experience. And, you know, I wouldn't, personally be sort of recommending to, to somebody who's young in their career to sort of push too hard on that because the experience you get from people, uh, role models, habits, how they structure their days, all the stuff we started speaking about is so valuable. Nonverbal cues, how does somebody opt, act inside a meeting? You can't see that through a screen. So I think those are some of the things that I would, I would really sort of be thinking about insofar mm. as, you know, thinking about one's career, you know, yeah. and, and building it out. Yeah, yeah, the idea of like the time is so important. You said saying no before is releasing you from time uh, and giving you the ability to think and, and do whatever you do. And the passion is definitely one thing. I think a lot of folks, um, a lot of folks kind of lose the passion when they lose the time and mm. they become overwhelmed with everything. A lot of our listeners may not know this, but you also spend a lot of time investing in early stage businesses, whether they're fintechs or financial services businesses. And I'm curious, I've heard a few things, but I'm curious like what you look for and how you see that industry in Australia, because we've seen some 
bumpy times recently where um, interest rates have gone up for a lot of uh, individuals, but also for business owners and uh, a lot of the innovation and people seeking funding. So I'm curious how you see the industry here, but also what you're looking for. Yeah, cool. The thing that I have done with investing in, in those types of things is to really focus on something that I know. So I personally find it a lot easier to to invest when I understand something, sort of fairly yep. obvious statement to make. And for me, it's financial services. It's just something that I've been spending most of my career in. And so I find that I'm able to get to the heart of a business problem or some of the challenges that a particular founder or business would be facing within the financial services space far quicker than I could if somebody comes to talk about an internet of things business yep. or a mobile app business. So, um, and the pitfalls that the pitfalls that come inside this industry are things that I am familiar with. Yep. So that's first of all. So first of all, it's about, personally, it's about investing in some, to some extent in what I know, uh, at least at an industry level. Um, but it's all about the people, honestly speaking. When it, you ask me the question, you know, what does one look for when thinking about early stage investing? is all about the people. The founders are absolutely critical because it's the resilience of the founder. It's the way they conduct themselves. Are they going to be a good capital raiser? Are they going to be good as a client winner? That, that will really ultimately drive early investment success or early success in a business. I personally look for three characteristics. It doesn't mean, neither need, mean there need to be three people, mm -hmm. but three characteristics need to be ticked off. Okay. In an early stage. The first is, as they call it, the hustler, the yeah. visionary, you know. So, um, in fact, those are probably two things. There's, first of all, there's the visionary yeah. and the person who can think big picture, yeah. drive strategy, think about the world in a way that others haven't thought about it before, or at the very least, you know, be, you know, lateral in their thinking and, and inspire. The second one is then the hustler, mm -hmm. i.e., sales and marketing, like who, who is in that business is actually thinking about sales and marketing. I'll come back to that in a second. And the third, just because by virtue of the fact that in 2023, almost everything has a technology element, who's a technologist? Yeah. Those are the things that I think have to be ticked off in my mind before proceeding. Um, now, the thing about, um, oh, and all of this obviously necessitates as well a, a reasonably large and attractive addressable opportunity in terms of what the, the business is going mm. after so if it's a if it's a really interesting business problem but it involves only a niche in a small niche then that's probably a bit hard because you're going to struggle to get the investment returns you need yeah um, sure. but the thing i wanted to probably highlight to come back to circle back to is the sales and marketing element um, in general one of the things that we see more often than not is people with excellent ideas often amazing technology often an amazing product thoughts or sometimes even the product itself has been built, but not nearly enough focus on how they're going to sell it and not nearly enough focus on how they're going to market it. So that's something that I personally lean into very heavily, you know, when, when thinking about investing. What actually is, do I see a world in which these guys and or girls are able to go out and sell this thing? Yeah. What's the marketing strategy? What tactics are they using? What, t what capabilities do they have, you mm. know, to sell? I just think it's one area that, is not focused on enough. And so in answer to your broader question about Australia and that, that is still probably an area where the Americans have a better handle. They're just generally speaking more mm. extroverted. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Right? Present very well. You're going to back their ability on a general basis to be better at sales and marketing. I'd love to see much more thinking around sales and marketing when it comes to early stage. I think that's the thing that lets so many people down because mm. you, you generally find it could be a technologist who's just head down focusing on a particular piece of code or beautiful looking app. 
but who's actually thinking about okay how do we how do we how do we sell this and i must say as as far as beta shares goes it's been an area of real focus for us oh it's Uh, clear yeah it's clear from the outside i think everyone would say that um and that's what you said you've come up against you from day one you started against three of the bigger organizations in the world right as competitors Mm. um so you chose a tough fight but you have distinguished yourselves and and differentiated yourselves mm. in marketing extremely well. Mm. What do you, but without giving away too much of the secret sauce there for mm. you, for you mm. guys here mm. at BetaShares, why do you think there's a reluctance to kind of emulate that? Uh, I think culture is a big part of it. I think a lot of the organizations, if you think about their foundations, have been very investments driven and sometimes quite product driven. Uh, you know, thinking very carefully about the cult of a particular active manager or, you know, thinking about how uh, the investment process, uh, Mm. you know, is put on a page. And again, it just comes down to not enough cultural thought around around how do we actually present ourselves to the market? You know, what are some tactics we should do to find different types of investors? So I think it's cultural in a lot of of cases. It's not that easy to, if you have an institutional culture that is all about investments and let me say we've got an incredible portfolio management team and an incredible investment focus but it's not the only thing we think about so i think that's probably a big part of it Mm. Um, some of the players in australia that have distinguished themselves at least up until recent times have actually been able to think more about the sales and marketing side alongside with the investments Um, Mm. it's just that in active management the problem is that that all goes well until it doesn't go well and then and then sort of the outflows start coming right so yeah um I, it's it's really interesting because people will know that listen to this or watch this. They'll know the BetaShares name because you guys always go above and beyond when it comes to communicating the strategy, communicating the idea, uh, communicating the product really well. And I often look at that from the outside. I'm like, why doesn't everyone else just do this? And it it's it's a really interesting mix. And I I think a lot of people that watch this would have a similar reaction. Mm. Um, there are a couple more questions I've got here. One of them's a bit of fun. Mm. Um, so I will direct anyone that's watching to the BetaShares website and you mm. can find out more about Ilan. Uh, there'll be a link in mm. uh, to LinkedIn as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. for folks that want to mm-hmm. get in contact, particularly maybe founders that are listening in the fintech and financial services space in particular. One of the things is because you have experience in private markets as well as public markets, it's mm. a very unique set of skills and experience that you have. Mm. One of the things that I think about a lot is, as you know, I love ETFs, champion ETFs, but is, you know, one of the fears that I have is like, do companies stay private for longer and do public markets become more narrow and concentrated over time? You know, these types of big picture questions. Mm. And I'm curious how you think about that and how you think about the other side of the fence being private markets Mm. and its relationship with public markets. Well, it's a, something we speak about a lot actually here at BetaShares, uh, the private markets piece. I think where we've always been coming from with the philosophy here at BetaShares in relation to the investment philosophy is what we call the barbell. And if we take the left-hand side of the barbell or one extreme side, it doesn't matter whether it's left or right, as passive index tracking strategies, clearly we've been headlong into that space. And our view is that that side of things just continues to grow you know, but there's no no doubt that the current balance between active and passive is still heavily, 
heavily, heavily weighted towards active. And we think there'll be some ec increased equilibrium there. So we've gone hard to say that anything that will be indexed, that can be indexed, will be indexed, and people <laughs> will, will gravitate towards lower cost, transparent liquid strategies such as ETF. So clearly, like we are deeply, deeply in that space. Mm. Um, what we're not particularly focused on, and nor do we feel that's got a huge amount of, of sort of a, a very, very bright future is the middle. And the middle is that sort of active masquerading as passive or passive yeah. masquerading as active. That I think is the middle that will be heavily squeezed. And that's an area that we've never wanted to spend any time on at all. But what that means is that the other side of the barbell is genuine access to actively managed strategies that can't be indexed. And you're calling that private markets. Um, yeah. We are really important. We think it's a really important thing. We think that investors need that in their portfolios. They do have different uh, ways in which they um, provide returns to the investors. So the correlations to things are different. The you know the way in which you can construct a portfolio. You, there's many, many, many significant amounts of evidence to indicate that putting some private markets assets inside a portfolio generates value. So we're really interested in that space, and I wouldn't be surprised if you would see us being a bit more involved in that space mm. um, in, you know, in, the, in the future. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, okay, great. I didn't, to be honest, I didn't expect you to say that. So um, that's really interesting because that's something that I see and I think that's an important part as someone who maybe tries to think about private investors and self-directed investors, people who are looking for uh, to manage their money themselves or at least have more control over it than historically has been the case. Yeah. Um, they're starting to wake up to that. Maybe it's like their introduction to that is now. Yeah. In 10 years, maybe we're having a similar conversation about access points and those yeah. types of things. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that's great. And um, I think we can all just wait um, with a bit of bated breath about what maybe we see you guys do in the future. Yeah. My final question is a very self-serving one. I'm here in Sydney. Ah. Um, it's a beautiful day here, looking out the window. And I, I do like to ask my guests, who are maybe more well-traveled than I am, of the best value restaurant here in Sydney? Ah, well, you asked about value. And so then I'll answer the question with the value lens. I love um, Chinese food mm -hmm. and I absolutely love a restaurant in Haymarket called Chinese Noodle Restaurant. Now it's an absolute <laughs> classic because Chinese Noodle Restaurant, next to it, there's a restaurant called Chinese Noodle House. And next to that, there's called The Chinese Noodle Restaurant. And then next to that one, there's called, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. So you must go to the one called Chinese Noodle Restaurant. And it's really awesome because it's super high value, value for money. It's not, it's low cost. You can go next door to any number of bottle stores, get a wine, get a beer, and just have great quality and low price Chinese food in the sun or in a beautiful night in the middle of the, the city there at Haymarket. I love that place. That's okay. the place. Chinese noodle restaurant. Okay, great. Ask for it by name. Don't, yes, don't get confused. That's, yes. that's wonderful. Yes. Um, this has been heaps of fun. Thank you so much for taking the time out of schedule. Saying yes to this one and not no, I do really appreciate it. Cheers, Aaron. Thanks so much. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, 
active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.